right, everybody. Good morning, and thank you for tuning in to day two of TBRCon 21. My name is David Walters, and I run the book review blog, fanfightaddict.com. So before we get into it, while this is a completely free convention, we do have three amazing charities we're raising donations for, uh, Shelter, No Kid Hungry, and World Wildlife Fund. Uh, there are links provided below uh, the video, or you can always go to fanfightaddict.com, click on the TBRCon 21 link at the top of the page. Any and all donations are appreciated. So for our first panel of the day, uh, we're going to talk about experiential inspirations. Uh, say that three times fast. Uh, but before we get into discussion, I'm going to let my panelists quickly introduce themselves. So we'll start with Mr. Cameron. Hi, I'm Miles Cameron. I, uh, I am wearing armor. That's not your imagination. Uh, uh, some of us agreed we were dressing up. Uh, before we before we started, but apparently we hit it from Sebastian. Anyway, uh, I write a bunch of fantasy novels, and I really enjoy uh, learning exactly how stuff works, and then trying to get it into novels without boring the crap out of you. Sebastian, hi, uh, I'm Sebastian DeCastell. I write uh, fantasy. I write a fantasy series called The Great Coats, and then uh, which is sort of swashbuckling uh, stuff. And then uh, I write a young adult fantasy series called Spellslinger, and um, I've got a, three books coming out this year uh, between those series. And uh, wow. uh, I. Um, I specialize, I think, in uh, in absolutely not experiencing anything real whatsoever, uh, and then trying to convince people that everything Christian writes is fake. <laughs> Scott, uh, my name is Scott Oden. I write uh, historical and fantasy, and historical fantasy. Uh, I I'm just going to sit here and bask in the glow of all these other writers. <laughs> Give us a couple titles, Scott. Um, their most recent series is uh, is uh, Gathering of Ravens. Uh, the very first one was a Egyptian historical novel called Men of Bronze, which was basically a Conan novel that got turned into a historical novel. So, and so those are. Yeah. <laughs> John. Hi, guys. So I'm John Gwynn. Um, and I am the writer of the Faithful and the Fallen series and of Blood and Bone series, both set in my um, fantasy world of the Banished Lands, which is inspired by uh, Celtic, Norse, Greco-Roman mythology. That's me. I also dress up as a Viking every now and then. Um, just so happened you caught me on a Viking day. So I am. <laughs> um. My name's Jeanette. Um, uh, I, I wrote one and only one fantasy novel. Uh, it's it's historical fantasy. It's um, under the pendulum sun. Uh, it's, it's about missionaries who go to fairyland. It's it's all right. Um, and I also like dressing up in silly costumes and prancing about a field, um, which I believe is what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. And she won the Joseph Campbell Award last year. No big deal. But the it's too modest. Outstanding award, right? Too modest to mention. The uh, the astounding award. Um, I believe I won the, the last one by the, the old name. Yes. Uh -huh. Well done. Cool. <laughs> All right. So um, so clearly, the first thing we need to do today is have show and tell. Um, so whoever wants to go first, I, I want to know. Well, 
I mean, I guess besides Scott and Sebastian, unless they just happen to have something laying around they want to talk about. Uh, if somebody wants to say what they're wearing today, where it was made, how many times you have worn it during any reenactments or anything, uh, et cetera. So who wants to start? Ooh, ooh I want to start. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> so uh, I'm, uh, I'm wearing a suit of 1380 plate armor. <laughs> And I could spend the whole rest of this panel telling you why every iota of it is the way it is. Because even though I actually fight in this armor competitively, this is reenactment quality armor, not um, what I, anyway, I could bore you with terms. It's, it's not the kind of armor that you see Russian guys bashing each other in a boxing ring wearing. This is real armor. And it's worn entirely over real medieval clothes. Um, you know, the, the shoes are medieval and the underclothes are medieval. Because uh, I'm very into this whole experiential thing. Um, this would be a very rich person's armor in 1380. Uh, I have hardened steel everything, and hardened steel is just coming into effect. And if you want to know what hardened steel is, it's basically spring steel. It means that, quite literally, if I put my thigh armor on the road and drive a truck over it, it will spring back into shape and still be thigh armor. And that means that when really large men hit me with things, which happens from time to time, it, it, it doesn't hurt. Um, but the show and tell I actually brought to talk about is swords, because I find that wherever I go, people are mostly interested in swords. So I'm going to give you a 45-second uh, show and tell on swords. Uh, I brought two, and both of them. And the reason I want to say this is because so many people have two-handed swords in fantasy novels. So I brought two to talk about two-handed swords. So this is uh, an Italian longsword of... Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to hold this up. This is an Italian longsword of about the same period as the armor I'm wearing. And what I want to point out to you is it almost has a rapier blade. Can you see how fine that point is? So while this is meant to be used in two hands, it's really used to stab mostly. And if you cut with this, unless you are really strong and really expert, you're not getting anywhere, especially against armor. This is meant for stabbing in the places the armor isn't not cutting in the places the armor is. And it's really very light. In fact, I can easily use this the way you would use a fencing foil. One-handed, see my finger over the guard, which you, by the way, see in Saint's pictures quite often, so we know they actually did that. And um, that allows me to control it exactly the way you would a modern fencing foil. And then you can also do this other terrible thing, and I think this is why these wheel pommels were designed this way. I can fight with it from the wheel pommel. And that gives me eight inches more reach than my opponent expects me to ever have. And notice I'm having no problem wielding this at the end of my arm, right? This is a very light sword. So that's a two-handed sword. And in 1515, this is a two-handed sword. This is more like what you expect Conan to have when he has a two-handed sword. It's uh, four feet, four inches long. I probably can't get the whole thing into the camera view. And it has a much longer hilt. See how big the hilt is? And it has a D-ring to protect my hand. This is all technology. And it has these little sword catchers to prevent a sword from coming down the blade and cutting my fingers. They get caught up here. And um, this is a completely different weapon. This weapon and this weapon, they are not used the same way. And you learn that by experience, and then you can write about it. There, that was my roughly 45-second show and tell. <laughs> Not to mention you're wielding swords in a church. 
You know, I've become quite well known for that around here. And um, for, from time to time, people get very upset. But Anglicans have no business. Anyway, I shan't, I shan't go down that road. <laughs> Can I jump in on the sword? For, oh, sorry, Jeanette, sorry. It is one of the things that I, I get quite excited about when I look at, um, one time I was given um, two rapiers to compare, a reenactment rapier and like an actual historical period rapier. And one of the things that kind of shocked, like um, one that wasn't used in reenactment, one of the things that really shocked me was how light the rapier was. Because in reenactment, you just add all this extra metal to it so that it's not sharp. And, and it's, right. they're incredibly heavy in comparison. Whereas uh, a, an actual period rapier, they're sharpened to like basically a needle point and you you can just fish with it they, they are you you don't need upper arm strength something that i abjectly don't have and i'm looking at going oh it's like it's like it's like a it's about as heavy as a carbon fi fiber foam weapon um which is a ridiculous thing to say <laughs> um but um but i think like in my head i always think like swords are really heavy and reenactors like to talk about how heavy swords are because their swords are very heavy because they don't, they're not, they shouldn't sharpen them for good reason. But that, that abused me. Um, I, I'm wearing, um, I'm wearing, um, I'm, I'm wearing live roleplay costumes. So this is abjectly no historical rigorous standards. It's very vaguely based on, um, oh, is it called the accolade? Um, um, like a, it's one of the Waterhouse paintings. So, you know, we're not even, we're talking, you know, Victorians dreaming about the Middle Ages <laughs> level of, um, but it's got these quite life hanging sleeves. I've got, I've got the buttons down the, um, down the sleeves. These are, these are not functioning buttons. They're just, um, they're, they're just, they're decorative. Um, and um, I wore this uh, playing uh, a false messiah. In, in, a, in, a, in a large roleplay game in, in the UK, which was quite fun. I talked a lot of theology, uh, which is something I do a lot of in live roleplay, um, which arguably feeds a lot of my characters talking about theology a lot. I, I find fictional theology very fascinating, um, which, which is why my characters talk theology a lot as well. Um, though, obviously, Pendulum Sun is less fictional or more fictional, depending on how you look at it. They, they they try to test whether or not um, um, <laughs> uh, transubstantiation works in fairyland because of the whole god thing. Uh, Sebastian, I know you're waiting to ask a question, but I just want to say, Jeanette, almost all, so I'm an Anglican. I'm actually a practicing Anglican. I go to church. It's the reason they let me in these places. Um, uh, Jeanette, I, I turned a bunch of people in my parish onto your books because your theology is so solid. And thank you. No, I, I, I've got to say it, it's I mean, for it's hard to describe and I don't want to give away your book, but it's not as though you're trying to sell us on Victorian Anglicanism. It's no. just that you know how that works and it feeds your book. And that gave me joy. Thank you. I, I, I wanted I, I really wanted that to work. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear that. But I'm just saying, like, also, you were you were kind of respectful and that's good. And, you know, anyway. Sorry, did not mean to derail, but it is part of experience, right? If you happen to be religious, you have an experience of how church works that, to be honest, I frequently find lacking in fantasy writers. They think religion is stupid. I have no problem with that, 
but they don't understand why other people don't think it's stupid. And that can cause characters to make really odd statements because they're supposed to be believers, even though they're the bad guys. Anyway, shut up, Christian. I, uh, I would just, I would like to point out if it's okay, that uh, there is a perfectly grammatically viable way of interpreting uh, Christian's statement to be that he joined the Anglican church so that he could do sword fighting in their basements. <laughs> coming plan. Yeah. Sebastian, that's exactly what I meant. They have yeah. huge basements. Have you ever been in an Anglican church? I, I, I know. Up in Durham, so renting out church halls is 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 part of part and parcel of our existence. We we spend a lot of time when we got Look, kicked out of the student union building. We spent a lot of time pretending to be goblins in in um in a local church hall. <laughs> Larping <laughs> requires someone to be an Anglican. That's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I was because Christian uh, talked about swords. I um, I wanted, uh, if it's okay, uh, I thought I'd just sort of show uh, this puppy. Ooh, so cool. Yep. So this is so this is um, this is what's called a 1908 model, which is a weird name for it. It's a it's a World War One cavalry saber, basically. Although interestingly enough, it it has what would you would think of as a pretty decent rapier blade functionally, um, and. Uh, what's interesting to me about it is that one of the things that people get, I think, get confused uh, naturally about swords is that so many of the swords that we'll see, like some of the older swords that we see in museums, for example, um, are very ornate and very beautiful. And that's because those are the ones that still survive because those were the ones that nobody was mostly using in combat. You know, like, for armor, we have such tiny armor and tiny clothes because they're children clothes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so. <laughs> Why is everyone so short? So people will say in the museum, and it's like, no, they're 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 made for teenagers. Yeah, there's very there's tend to be ceremonial armor. But what's interesting to me about what I love about this, my wife bought me this sword years ago, is uh, there's nothing pretty in it. it. You know, if you look at the scabbard, it's it's it purely ugly and purely functional. Um, what's I, I love the fact that it's got a gunmetal grip. Um, because this was used in in, in World War One, uh, and what's kind of fascinating to me, and and to sort of get to the sort of the experiential side, so I've used a lot of swords in my time. Um, uh, Christian could take me probably in a fight with just about anything, although I, I I'd be willing to go epe to epe with him. Um, but uh, but I find that holding this sword is so different for me, because when you feel it and you feel that this is a rough and tumble this was meant to be used on on horseback in a war where people were about to die uh and you feel the sort of the the how functionally it's made that when i hold this sword i have a completely different feeling that goes through me than than most of my other swords which are which are you know recreations or things like that um and so if you're if you're if you're trying to sort of engage with that sort of world and of, of sword combat, I find sometimes even just getting an opportunity to pick up and hold a sword like this or like, or what Christians got, because those again are, are meant to be functional. Um, it can, it, it, you know, you don't have to learn how to sword fight to get a feeling for what that means um, and for that notion. And so when I write, like when I write the Great Coats books, I find sometimes I'll just pick this up and just sort of just hold it for even a while. Not, I, I used to do fight choreography, so my fight scenes are, are, are largely, are fundamentally far more derived from Errol Flynn movies than from, uh, 
than they are from actual uh, historical practice. But uh, but I'll, before I'm writing a, a great cutscene, I'll sometimes pick up uh, this sword because it reminds me of what that feeling must be like. Um, and so that's what I kind of wanted to just sort of say is that 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 sort of that that those those experience you know you don't have to get the full experience of training and sword fighting which itself is problematic in a modern era because you're never training in the way that you would do if you were actually going to be you know killing someone in the sense that you know that you're never going to be in a fight for your life with a sword um and that conditions a lot of our responses and as Jeanette was saying earlier you know um when you're using uh, sort of LARPing weapons or things like that, they're actually much heavier and harder to wield because they're they're specifically meant not to hurt people. Um, but I always find you can you can actually kind of put yourself a little bit in in those shoes just by you know getting a chance to handle something like this. So that's why I wanted to show the 1908. John, are you going to talk about the axe? Actually, I thought I'm talk about my say axe. Can you see this here? Uh, well, this John looks very different off. than you're imagining. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw in that one of the best teachers of medieval martial arts says to new students every time, "You don't need to bring any of your martial arts bullshit here because you will never fight to the death in a back alley with an Italian longsword." And I just I, I love that because it really does condition the attitude. But Sebastian is right. I'm never going to fight to the death with an Italian longsword, so I don't need to do things. I mean, I do fake fights to the death because I live roleplay. So being cornered and desperate is a feeling I'm very familiar with. But it is with phone weapons, and my actual life isn't at risk. Um, but, but I do get ambushed to the toilet. I did die once that way. <laughs> that, that is that is the law. Um, the toilet phone is always very dangerous. Miles, I have to ask, how, how comfortable are you right now? Because you look very comfortable. You look like you could take a nap there. Yeah, uh, I'm quite comfortable. Uh, it, <laughs> it's, it's John's turn, but if it comes back around to me, I'll talk to you about living in plate armor. Go ahead, John. Okay, I'm ready now. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm a Viking reenactor um, on occasion. And uh, so that period stretches from roughly 793 AD when uh, Lindisfarne was attacked um, by Viking raiders up to 1066 when Harold Hardrada lost his life at Stamford Bridge trying to conquer England. But anyway, one of the, one of the kind of uh, staple weapons of, of the Viking warrior was the Sayax, if you can see this, which is basically a big knife. Uh, they were quite practical, the, the Norse, so it was a multi-purpose weapon and axes would range from, from much smaller up to about this, this is probably the biggest they come, which is about 14 inches, I believe. This particular one is um, a copy of, of a Sayax that was found in a grave in Birka, which was a market town in Sweden um, during the Viking period. and. Um, being old, I've forgotten the grave number, but my son Edward could tell you exactly what, what number it was found in and far more details than me. But um, this is a Sayax. So you can see that this is a, a reenactment blade, so the, the uh, tip is, is blunted, so you can't um, put people's eyes out with it in the, in the shield wall. But it was a weapon that was used 
in the from primarily in the shield wall because much like the gladius it's shorter and much more appropriate for stabbing behind a shield in a crush rather than swinging a sword once you're in a shield wall there's not a lot of room and you've got guys either side of you um so it's quite a tight confined space so it's ideal for a stabbing weapon through the gaps around your shield um yeah it's a single bladed weapon broken backed but um, the, the Vikings would use it for all sorts of things. They use it for shaving, for hunting, cutting food, chopping. You know, it, it was a multi-purpose tool. So there you go. That reminds me of, uh, I have an Afghan Kyber knife that looks almost exactly the same as that. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, in the same style of sheath and everything. The uh, but It has a, a, a very thick spine mm -hmm. and it just seems like it, it's more of a i don't know punching punch through or chopping like for chain mail but it's a uh, extremely yeah. heavy so yeah and yeah, it's some blade so you know it gives you a bit of it's not going to bend it's yeah. it, it's a very solid weapon and they're fabulous for breaking up kindling <laughs> absolutely <laughs> That, it, it's worth mentioning uh, just because of the, the discussion of the different weapons and because we're talking about weapons that cover, uh, well, I guess uh, over a thousand thousand years when you go from the SAX to the to the 1908 uh, model cavalry saber. Um, anyone who does does stuff with swords often gets asked, you know, which is the best sword and and, and things like that. Is the best sword. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jeanette. It's it's except um, the rapier, which is objectively the best sword. <laughs> Well, I, I would normally agree. I would normally agree, except that the small sword beats the rapier almost every time, unless you're doing Spanish destreza fencing. So does the so does the two-handed sword. <laughs> which is, you know that rapiers are Saturday night specials for thugs and alleys to use, and that gentlemen carry swords like the very long sword. Um, and the whole Montante thing is how I kill six guys with rapiers with my one long sword. It's actually got drills for how to kill multiple people with rapiers because you have a huge sword and they can't parry. That is, yeah. Yeah, is very bad at parrying. Well, and, and, and people often forget that um, that in ninety that the, you know one of the oldest weapons we we know of is the spear, um, and a spear will beat almost every sword uh, in in a, in an actual fight. You've just the, the length you said it. Also, oh, sorry, objectively cheaper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 cheaper. It's easier to train with. Uh, there's and yet you know there's tremendous skills you can develop with the spear. But mostly it's just getting. It's just people struggle with that concept that fundamentally um, the weapons that people used in the past were actually very sophisticated. Even when they looked simple, they were perfectly designed for the context in which they were meant to be used. So this, as 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 John was saying, the Sayax if you need something that yes can be used in a fight but can also be used for hunting and can also be used for shaving if you need the this is the one thing you're going to carry with you you don't want a rapier you don't want a two-handed longsword you probably want a sayax because you're you know because your rapier is just not that good for spearing bunnies I, I think I, i'm going to be very that tension between the mythology of um of weapons swords in particular have this great mythology around them um compared to 
you know, the the day-to-day living existence. Um, You know, swords have that mythology because they're expensive, because they become hereditary weapons, because Excalibur exists and no one remembers Ron. (laughs) <laughs> I, I would I would like to stick in on behalf of my friend C.S. Friedman that uh, a lot of swords are fashion items and that what swords look like and how they function often has as much to do with fashion as it does with practicality. I'm not uh, I'm not in any way against what Sebastian just said. Swords tend to represent, however, a whole cultural and industrial development. And it's a game. When I was a teenager, my my nerdy friends and I used to go like, we can identify the culture of your fantasy novel in one sword. You describe the sword, <laughs> we'll tell you what what culture you were aiming at or copying. Um, but uh, you know, John Sayaks, I think, is a perfect example because not only is it practical, and I wasn't kidding about breaking up. I do Viking too, John. Uh, not only is it practical for breaking up kindling or for I'll breaking up a deer, a deer if you shoot one, but the suspension system, right? You, have you got it on a single ring? No, no, it's on three. Because the way it hangs on a Norse belt is very cunning because it hangs sideways. And you know why that's great? Because if you're wearing a 14th century dagger, which is up and down on your belt, when you sit down in a ship, your dagger sticks into your side and is dashed uncomfortable. Whereas the Sayax is actually designed to be worn by a guy pulling an oar on a ship. And to me, that like, as Sebastian is saying, as Jeanette is saying, like weapons are everything. They're cultural artifacts, like fashion, like clothes, like how ships are designed, like everything. And, uh, you know, for people who are listening and, and want to write fantasy novels, I guess the reason I think experience and paying attention to all these details, and I'm, I, I feel like I'm looking at five other writers who do this, is that you get the, the culture feed to the weapons or the clothes or the food or whatever is a two-way street. And once you decide that it's flintlocks and rapiers, you've made a ton of other decisions. Once you've decided it's say axes and broadswords, you've actually made a ton of other decisions. Um, and I think that that is one of the things that making that choice, what's fun about it, but also what's maybe not quite like playing World of Warcraft where they can have long swords or short swords or uh, various other stabby things. Shut up, Christian, you're talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love how live role players keep trying to make backscabbers work. And and it's very oh, yeah. it's very laudable. They have all these kind of clips to make it work. But the thing is, backscabbers don't work. Well, they, they do. You you can strap a sword to your back for traveling purposes, which is a thing that they did, but it was for a traveling you, you cannot quick draw from your back. It's it's physically impossible. And one of my favorite little stories about this is that in um the old Robin Hood series, um Robin of Sherwood, the um ITV one from the eighties, um, one of the characters has 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 twin back scabbards and you never see him draw them. You will always see him draw them halfway yeah. and then it'll cut away and they'll cut back. I don't have his swords out because it's it's your your arms start long enough to draw anything of substantial length from your back, and it's very very funny. yeah that's right. Um, I think for me the you um, know, once you kind of factor in modern clips and things, it just about works. And and there are people who are making who are, who are trying very hard to live that dream. It's great. So I know how I'd, I, I mean, if, it's funny because as soon as someone says, you know, this is a thing that doesn't work, I instantly go, right, I'm putting that in a novel now. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and and but but uh, but it occurs to me that the way you'd want to do it is you'd want a way to quick uh, any any technique to quick release the the strap from the scabbard so that you could kind of pop it and then just you know give a tug and then the scabbard's going to fall off and and then you can do your big nice flourish. So maybe that would be a way to do it, or at least it's a way it's going to work in my fantasy novel. Um, the really the really people. bad thing is if somebody shoves you up against a wall, you have no weapon. <laughs> And when you're my size in a bar fight, you're always the first guy shoved against a wall. That can be a character trait. Bob shoved against the wall all the time. That's a great. I, yeah, the, I, I'd I'd love to see that as a, as a movie. The guy who literally never draws his weapons, like it's got all the, but you know, all the perfect sort of arrangement of gorgeous weapons, but is just always either shoved up against the wall and can't draw it, or. You know, so. <laughs> Or you can, very good at fisticuffs. Yeah, he's yeah. got a brilliant headbutt. You, you yeah. could have him. You could have him with the sword over his shoulder, but when he pulls it out, it has a blade about this long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, about that long. Yeah. We're all showing show weapons, apparently. So I'm going to show you mine. Here are some live roleplay weapons. They're tent pegs. Uh, how can I get them shot? Here we go. They're tent pegs. They're foam tent pegs. They're coreless. They're, they're coreless, oh. and you can you can you can they can be used as a throwing weapon. Um, and I have them because my character's name was Yale, um, and in the Bible, Yale very famously uh, drove a tent peg into the head of the general Cir uh, Cicero. Um, name means snake. Um, Yale's name means goat. Um, and as a result, um, I decided that my character should carry around tent pegs um, to use as a weapon. Um, and it was going to be my gimmick. Sadly, I never got to fight with them, but um, but I had them at all times. <laughs> Just in case. She was the one who kept getting shoved up against the wall. <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for Bob always gets shoved against the wall. <laughs> no, she, she just had, she just had put up her tent. And you know, and then it's like, oh God, there's a you know, I need to throw something at someone, but the, but I don't want to lose the tent. It took so long to get it nicely set up this way. Exactly. <laughs> Emergency tentpegs. I'm searching desperately for a joke about tents and religion. Maybe that's an American thing. <laughs> I mean, it is quite intense. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, Jeanette. Uh, on that note, no, she's good. Uh, John, I think you had you had something to say a little earlier. Do you still want to? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I was just going to say, um, you know, reenacting is great fun, and we and I'm sure Christy and I do do it for fun and the the enjoyment factor. But um, what I hope it brings to my writing, and I, I imagine you guys are the same, is just that that touch of authenticity. Um, which obviously we're writing fantasy, so you know these are made-up worlds, and, and you've got magic and monsters and all the rest of it. But I think if if what I strive for in my, in my books is to add that edge where it where it can feel almost real. So I think reenactment is actually really helpful and useful in those terms, in that it, it, you can learn those those touches of authenticity that you just wouldn't wouldn't enter your mind otherwise. You know. I, for, the first day I went to um, join my Viking reenactment group, they put a shield in my hand, and after five minutes, you know, my shoulder was burning. It was hard to to hold the the shield up, and every every chance you got, you you drop your arm, 
to rest your shoulder. And it's just little touches like that that, well, I, I would never would have thought of it unless I'd actually done it. So I think, you know, reenactments, even though it can be great fun, it could, it's also um, a really valuable resource for, for writing. That's right. I have to know, what exactly does it feel like being in a shield wall? Because I know you've been on one. Oh, yes, fantastic. I mean, you know, you... you well, you, you haven't got that that fear of actually dying. <laughs> that, that's a bonus. But um, I often, I often, um, well, usually I, when I'm in a shield wall, I'm standing with my sons, my three sons either side of me. So it's, it's a really, it's quite a special feeling actually, standing shoulder to shoulder, shields locked, um, as your enemy are approaching or if you're if you're marching forwards. Yes, it, it, it just feels great. It's good. While his sons are like trying to shove him outside of the shield wall. <laughs> most, most of the stab wounds are in my back. I don't know where they from. <laughs> oh goodness! Um, so, kind of, kind of getting into uh, what John was talking about, where he was touching on about the authenticity. Um, it's kind of, I've got kind of like a joke question, but I'm sure Christian will probably have a, a, a nice quip for this. But do any of you actually like? when you're trying to get inspired to write your next novel or maybe even the next scene in a book that you know, has to deal with uh, certain pieces of armor or clothing that you have, do you have to like maybe put it on in order to like get the feeling, you know, of how the, the scene's going to play out? Or is that just something that we all think that you do? <laughs> uh, I'll, I guess we're going in order. I, I have a two part, I have a two part answer. One is yes. Uh, I was feeling very, very much like Sebastian when he talked about just putting the sword in his hand uh, before he sits down to write a scene, because I do that all the time, sometimes in my garage. Super nerdy. But curiously, the thing that I guess reenacting has taught me most, oh, I have so many stories, but it's more about living, cooking, eating, and sleeping. And uh, my characters spend an inordinate amount of time cooking, building camps, taking their camps down and traveling. Because um, as an old professor of mine used to say, at most medieval soldiers fought one day a year, but they had to live the other, you know, 160 days of the campaigning season. And um, and I, I, you know, what I guess I often do, for instance, before I write a feast scene, I'll cook my family who, yes, I inflict medieval food on them all the time. And my 16 year, my 17 year old daughter will roll her eyes and say, are we in the middle ages? And they both reenact with me, but apparently the food is not what they want every night. Anyway. Um, my my uh, partner runs a medieval, like a, like a cooking uh, collective, like a, a historical cooking collective. So they used, they, um, not this year for obvious reasons, but um, they used to do um, like they used to test recipes in in, in my kitchen, and I'd just, like sneak in and um, and 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 sort of munch on um, like you know the, the kind of recipe development process. Because the thing is, medieval recipes do not give you quantities at all. So, and if you're you're lucky if they kind of write something like "Do it like I showed you," um, put in fine herbs. Um, and, and then fine herbs is a, a slightly defined subject. It is slightly more specific than you might think from that description. Um, but, um, but you'd have to tweak the recipe and, um, and kind of trial and error it. And, and it's quite fun watching um, and um, cribbing off his notes. Um, they, they also run a medieval banquet once a year. Um, 
not this year, maybe next year. <laughs> maybe next year. Uh, I, I just I just want to close that by saying so I use stuff in my books that uh, I would never have known if I hadn't done it and one is how much you hate somebody who lets the fire go out in the rain. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah. When 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 you're camping in the Middle Ages and all you have is wool, and and you assign somebody to fi fire watch and they screw it up, the hate is real. Anyway, Sebastian. Oh, I think um, so. I used to I used to sport fence quite a bit, and um, uh, years ago. And I one of the things that I took away from that. So for so for sorry, this is a, a weird way to get into it, but for context, for me, the thing that's most important is trying to figure out what the emotions are, like what the what the connection is between the physical event and the thought and the and and what you're sort of feeling at at the time. Um, and so. What you know, the hardest thing to get for me is is those very di direct emotional um, responses inside yourself, so that you can use those to then write evocatively enough, so that someone else can sort of try to feel them. And and I, one of the things I, I always remember from sport fencing that that was really telling for me was, so when you're sport fencing, there's very little chance of dying, but getting hit is really really unpleasant. And the the longer you've been in in a in a, in a fencing match. And the more frustrated you get, the more that touch actually hurts. I mean, sometimes it really does hurt. Like your first few months of sport fencing, every time you take your shirt off, you're covered in yellow bruises. Um, but what I but I always remember this feeling of where you just get so frustrated that even though you know trying to go in for the attack has a very low chance of success and a pretty high chance of you getting hit instead, you just suddenly do it anyway. And that whole kind of mental breakdown um, that that happened to people in in actual duels, um, where they just you know a lot of duels are are lost predominantly because somebody loses patience. Because um, if you're you know if you if you're if you're even remotely decent with a sword, you can you have a lot of techniques to to prevent yourself from getting hit. You can back up. You can parry. You can do all kinds of things. Um, and so it's that those moments of frustration of, that's so intense that you're literally going to end up throwing your life away rather than wait any longer because your brain and your body and all of the chemists, all of the, the, the chemicals inside you just won't allow you to maintain that horrible stasis. So like finding those kind of feelings to me um, is a big part of the sort of the experiential process. A few years ago, um, my wife and I were on a trip in South Africa and, uh, and we were on this tour and though I have no idea why they made us go to the world's tallest uh, commercial bungee jump. Um, you know, which has pretty much nothing to do with South Africa in, except that they some people go there to bungee jump i guess um and i'd never been bungee jumping and i sorry it exists there it exists there which is which perfectly valid and um and it was interesting because um uh i didn't want to do it but there was a guy there, nobody wanted to do it on this tour there was, was one guy who really wanted to do it he didn't want to do it alone and so eventually i said all right all right i'll do it with you and um i've never had a fear of heights before i developed it by going on that bungee jump um but but they because they they uh, first of all they they pump this hugely loud music the whole time while you're all waiting for your turn and it's like this big crazy disco dance party almost on this platform under this bridge for a 234 meter drop um 
Oh, was it meter or feet? I can't remember. I think my, uh, whichever one it was, it's like the, the tallest commercial bungee jump out there. And, um, and they, you know, and when they put you in the, the harness, you know, your feet are strapped together and they like haul you to the edge and, and they have great video production for this for no, like they have all these cameras in just right places and they tell you to look up and smile. And so it's really hilarious. There's a great shot of me looking up and I'm smiling. And then I just look down and you can just see my whole face go like this right before someone shouts bungee and they like, I, get hurled off this thing. Um, but, but just those kind of, those kind of experiences, like for me, that's the thing, like, you know, I had the absolute sensation of, I guess this is what it's like to die by falling off a bridge. Um, and so that's kind of, that's, that's what I'm always trying to kind of access when I'm writing, like that's the hardest thing. And that's one of the reasons why, as I was saying before, you know, I'll like actually grab the sword because even if I'm not going through the elaborate sort of process of, of, of fencing. And I'm sure this is true for, for others as well, that once you've choreographed a few fights, you don't need to totally reenact the fight necessarily. Sometimes you'll want to, but you don't have to. And it's especially hard when you don't have a partner because all your moves work perfectly. Um, but, uh, but just trying to access that feeling through uh, those feelings through touch and things like that, that's, that tends to be the, the most important part of the process for me. I love peeling parsnips. Um, so, um, cause, cause my, I come from it from live role play. So we spend like, you know, entire weekend in the field, you're, you're, and, and you spend a lot of time pretending to be someone else. And in between, as, as Mal says, um, in between all, all the, the pretend fighting, um, you're also pretend making dinner, um, over some form of campfire and, um, and you're, you're also trying to make small talk and filling all the time because there is a lot of it in between the fights. Um, and, and I find those moments when you're trying to make small talk around your potatoes and your parsnips, it, it's, it's when, at least from like a, a role player perspective, it's when you really start thinking about what your character is, because it's, it's for me, it's, I don't know, it, it's the sort of like the idea that, you know, every, every life or death moment is kind of samey to me. Like, oh, you're scared, sure, you know, you don't want to die. Well, no one wants to die. But but when you're kind of, what it feels like to be bored, when you're doing something repetitive, when you're making little bits of small talk, like what kind of jokes fill up that space in your world? To me, that's kind of what gives the world texture and what makes it really come alive for me. Um, it's, it's the kind of moments when your character is just kind of staring in the fire or you're you're kind of just waiting in between things and I, I think that trying to make that sing and those kind of in-between scenes when it's not plot heavy that's that's hard um and I can, both I can tell you're not collecting and, and and as a writer and they, they have feed each other for me Jeanette I can tell you're not collecting your own firewood <laughs> I, I, um well, you see, we have, we have the luxury of, um, of having our own pallet wood. Uh, it's just um, that firewood collection is a gas that will expand to fill any amount of time that you have. It's, it's usually washing up in our camp. No one wants to do the washing up because it's cold. Mm -hmm. um, we did have a chore board after a while. What about you, John? 
Sorry, my wife's just my wife's just going. <laughs> <laughs> say hello, darling. No. Come on, sorry. Hi, Carolyn. So sorry. I I feel that seeing as John sent me to my horse with hi Sebastian. Hi Carolyn. With a set of uh, scissors to cut off my horse's towel. I think it needs to be shown. Sorry. Sorry. Fair enough. <laughs> you can edit that out, can't you? Carolyn, we we haven't met, but I want to congratulate oh you God. on getting John a, a helmet for Christmas. I, oh. I want to say that. You've set a new bar for fantasy writer wives throughout the universe. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, he does, he does write a letter to Santa, don't you? Which usually ends well, up I'll give it to you, in so. my bag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I, hope, I, I hope I get to meet you at Kareem's wedding. Oh, definitely. We can't wait. I'm trying to get in here. Oh, there yeah. we go. We can't wait. Well, that'd be, that'd be great. We're Are you going to try this? Yeah. So this, I have to tell, can I tell you, you can edit me out, can't you? But John gave me a pair of scissors. Can you imagine this? My horse's hair. He said it had to be his. So he's, at least he's going to have to talk about it now. <laughs> Another show and tell. <laughs> so really it's Carolyn that's got the experiential inspiration. Yeah, that's yeah right. exactly. <laughs> when, when's Carolyn's first book coming out? <laughs> no, I keep saying she should have a go. <laughs> um, so yeah, this helmet, it's um yeah, well I'll talk about talk about the helmet briefly first. So it's um an Eastern European style helmet. I think a lot of these were found in Poland. I think it's towards the end of the right, the uh, Viking era, um, Poland, and, and probably further east, the Rus, Rus region, Russia, um, Byzantium, and it's uh, it's kind of a uh, a horse rider's helmet, as you can see by the horsehair plume. So, um, yeah, probably worn by by people like the Rus. And so on. So it was uh, specifically more of a, a horse combat helm. And there's a character in um, my second series called Bleda, who's basically, you know, I, I, I call this I call this mannequin Bleda because <laughs> it's basically what he would wear. Got some lamellar plate armor, a horsehair um, plume helm with real horsehair. Because when I bought it, it had like some plastic um, pretend hair, which just wasn't cutting it. So um, Fortunately, my wife had a horse, and I gave her a pair of scissors, and, um, and here we are. <laughs> so there, there you go. I was worried there for a moment you had stolen Carolyn's hair, actual hair. <laughs> no, not quite. Mind you, that's not a bad idea. I, I hear, I hear, long hair makes very good bowstrings. David, the different, different reenactment period. <laughs> Dave, make Scott make Scott talk. I know, I, I, Scott. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> let's let's let's, just, let's just, you have your own topic besides sitting in the shadows. We got we got Scott frozen. <laughs> no, he's muted though. Is he? Scott's a Norse man, isn't he? Gathering of Ravens, great Norse yep. novel. 
I don't think Scott's frozen. Nah, now nah, he's muted. Okay. He's pretending. I'm, 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 I'm having him come gone. back in. Yeah, I'm going to bring him back in. See if that works. Now he's muted again. Scott, you there? Nope. nope. <laughs> he just keeps going in there. Now he's unmuted. <laughs> oh, now he's muted again. <laughs> Miles, what's your favorite recipe? Um, ricotta gnocchi. <laughs> It's a it's a 14th you can still get it in northern Italy. It's a 14th century recipe, and uh, I've made it camping in high wilderness. We'll talk. <laughs> All right, so I think Scott's going to try to rejoin in a minute. So um, while we've uh, while we're waiting, so those of you who who've done reenactments um, or you know LARPing, uh, how does how does the real life prep? Uh, and reenacting transition truly into your writing. I know, you know, we've heard about uh, doing hand-to-hand -hand combat. We've talked about, uh, you know, fires and fire watch and not making, you know, making sure the fires don't go out. Uh, but I, you know, I would assume because I've, I've seen, I've seen models uh, with pictures and videos of, you know, actually like gathering food and so forth from, from what's around you. So how, how does that really get into your, into your works, even though we're talking fantasy here? Uh, I'll try and make this super fast. I'm actually doing a director's cut of The Red Knight right now because uh, it's about to be the 10th anniversary. And so I'm getting, I'm being allowed by Jillian Redfern uh, to put back into it the six scenes that were cut to keep it from being 700 pages. And I'm also <laughs> polishing some things. Anyway, you're all writers. You know what I'm talking about. Um, but one of the things that I noticed and made me laugh while I was sort of, I'm reading the whole book for the first time in nine years, is uh, how many times knights on horseback uh, have their horses stung by hornets or, or deer flies. So uh, that is an experience I have directly had. Uh, and it's super exciting when you're um, trying to fumble a sword or a lance while your absolutely panicked horse runs away with you through your friends, your enemies, you know, uh, deep brush, raspberry thicket. Uh, raspberry thicket is no problem in armor, by the way. But um, uh, that was a direct translation. Apparently, it was such a profound experience, and this is sort of the joke, that it's in The Red Knight, it's in William Gold, and it's in one of my Greek books. Apparently, <laughs> having a hornet-stung horse run away with me while I was in armor has informed, like, everything I've ever done since then. Um, but I think that that's like a, a diagram of how it usually works out. It's not all of reenacting that you translate. And I could tell you experiences I've had that have nothing to do with being dressed in funny clothes or being in a reenactment where I nonetheless go like, oh, this is a valid experience for Bob. I can put this, you know, I may be on vacation with my wife visiting a castle in England wearing shorts and a t-shirt, but I suddenly realize how big that gate is or I don't know, something else like that. And I, I, when I was younger, I just made a mental note and it made it into the book. But you know what? At 58, I now write it down on my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. Um, um, so so last thing I'll say, I just wrote my first science fiction novel called Artifact Space, which will be out this summer. And a lot of it is based on my life as a naval aviator on an U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. Um, but I, how... I, I kind of want to reflect on what experience is without eating up Scott's time because Scott deserves to talk. I found myself watching a YouTube of a pilot landing an S3 Viking. That was my airplane on an aircraft carrier at night. 
I haven't done that since 1994. I cried because I heard the sound like that was my whole life for three years, right? And I hadn't heard an S3 Viking engine on final as you put it up to full power. And anyway, and I just went like, oh God, this is so part of me that there are tears in my eyes while I watch my little phone while some other guy lands an S3 on an aircraft carrier. I hope that makes sense. I realized it was such a profound experience that I wanted to put it in a book. And, uh, and I, I will admit, I hadn't really thought about it in a long time. And I guess I'm just using this to say, sometimes you can borrow other people's experience. Um, you know, isn't that like, we're writing books to give experience to other people in a way. Um, but also, you know, I think you can watch a martial arts video or watch a medieval cooking video and maybe get enough out of that to write a good scene. And I absolutely do that. I can't do everything myself yeah. anyway. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a really good point to make that, um, you know, writers aren't writers because they experience the most. Uh, the, the, the writing talent is trying to is trying to communicate experiences to other people. Um, and and so it's and, you know, we all know the stories of, of the or the, the warnings of, you know, the, the, the people that research so much and then they want everyone else to know how much they researched. And so their fantasy book ends up being just full of, you know, endless info dumps about, you know, precisely how you make armor. Um, and so, yeah, it's always, that's, that's always one of the things is there's a difference between um, authenticity as, you know, or as, as a notion of accuracy of how something works or what it, even what it feels like versus evo evocation in terms of like, how do you then evoke that for someone else? Because you're specifically evoking it for people who aren't going through that experience, right? Well, there is always that tension where some people come in with assumptions about what a certain era or time period or experience is like, and that may not actually tally with reality. I mean, the classic example people use here is sort of like, um, you know, Greeks wore, wore colors, they, they had dyes, but because all our statues, the, the colors all came off, we assume they wore white a lot. So sword and sand sandal movies, everyone's wearing white. Um, um, and, and that, and, and we're always still grappling with that tension of what people think the past and therefore fantasy should look like um, and what it actually looks like. And then obviously what you want it to look like, which, which, are, which are by no means the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. And and obviously, you know, um, whiteness doesn't just come in terms of bed sheets. Um, but but that's a different <laughs> subject, and we can just happily allude to it for now. <laughs> All right, Scott, we're we're gonna try to we're gonna try to run back to you again. So uh, so we need an orcs perspective. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be able to get a sound. We may have to have Scott come do his own panel. Yeah. By himself. <laughs> you just need, you need to hold up placards, just quickly write <laughs> answers and hold up placards. Scott. <laughs> Scott, Scott, are you there? The internet, eh? He is. Just, yeah, I think, I think his internet's got him down. 
Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to hold up a placard. Just see it. There we go. There you go. In a book. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good bird. You know what we need to do for Scott is uh, is he'll pretend to talk and we'll just fill in the voice for him. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I'd like to talk about my book, Gathering of Ravens. Now it's <laughs> what I mostly want to point out is that it's vastly superior to anything anybody else in this panel has ever written. They're all hacks. Odin out. In the course That's a of terrible my thing life. to say, Scott. No, in the course of my well, life as an orc, I learned a great deal of experience that I wanted to say. There we go. We got a little bit of, little bit of words. Can you hear me? Can you hear me okay? Kind of sort of. I can hear you. Yay. Do you want to try to drop video and just do audio? Hang on. Yes, I'll just. <laughs> I was sure this was going to be me. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we tested this twice now. <laughs> it was never going to be you. <laughs> I am dynamite on the technology of the 14th century, and it kind of all ends right after that. <laughs> um, all right. So how's that? Good? Better. Better. I feel yeah, like your armor doesn't create a Faraday yeah. cage. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's Wi-Fi. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <sighs> I can hear you now, Scott. I think we. I think we can hear it intermittently. Can you? Oh. Yeah. Can you hear? Hear me now? Yep. I know. Hold back. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know if we're gonna be able to get Scott in. I don't still think his his connection's good enough. Yeah, he just dropped. Me, can, right. can can he drop his video and talk? I that's what I was gonna see if he could, but I don't know if he heard me. I don't know if his connection was strong enough to hear me. So maybe we can. I'll type it I'm gonna, out. Here. I'm gonna I'm gonna send it to him on Twitter. You guys keep going. Right, sounds good. Um, well, so I'm sorry. I was, I was gonna say while while we're waiting for that, uh, Jeanette uh, politely alighted over. Uh, you know, issues of, of, of the white bed sheets being not the only overly white representation. Um, but I just want to say, like, it is such an important kind of uh, element of uh, just even on the subject of authenticity and experience. So, I mean, it, uh, so, you know, if, did you want to expand on that? Because it's kind of, because it, it's interesting to me. It, it, it's just, I mean, for, for me, it's just, you know, wherever I go, at least one person of color exists. So that's that's my that's that's every room I walk into. But um, um, I, I think there is an idea that uh, you have this tension where people think the past is very white okay. because how's that with no video? Created a very white past in in movies, um, especially and in a lot of in, in a lot of in a lot of books um, and in a lot of fancy books. Um, and and then people kind of assume that of like that history is white, fantasy books should be white, and therefore, you know, we should keep writing fantasy books that should be white. Um, and and that's that's not true of basically any era. I think that even sometimes when we kind of try to correct historical misconceptions, we can end up saying stuff like, "Ah, oh, yes, this is the first um, time you know a black person showed up in England," and it's like, well, <laughs> probably not. Um, you know, this portrait you're pointing to is in like the 1600s. There were probably ones before that. 
Um, and, and every time you kind of look for a, and, and people kind of, when you try to collect con, con, correct misconceptions with this idea of the firsts, you kind of fudge the fact, the idea that, oh, this is when the first contact happened, when actually there was almost always contact and you can keep looking back and finding more firsts. People were constantly moving. Stuff was constantly moving. Um, one of the little anecdotes I, I kind of really love about the kind of interconnectivity of the, the least historical, say, medieval world is that um, every household would basically have a giant, um, would have a giant um, cooking pot, um, and they would be, um, and there would be, oh God, um, there would be beaten copper, I believe, zinc. They, they had it had metal that was that that was not really mined in the British Isles, and they had to be imported somewhere from the continent. And I'm really fudging this anecdote, but my point is that these giant cooking pots were traded across and, and possibly became generational objects. But even in this kind of little thing, it was ubiquitous and people traded, people used spices um, and, and there was a lot of flow of objects, if not people. Um, and, and the world was very connected. I think that when you create medieval like fantasy worlds and I was very guilty of this when I was younger. Um, I would be like, I really love the Vikings. I'll create a fantasy world that's just basically Vikings and, you know, no one else. Um, they can fight each other, you know, Vikings versus Vikings. Yeah, like in the sagas. And, and that's cool too, but you kind of end up going, they, they kind of end up existing in this bubble where it's basically white people who are Vikings and, and they're in this little bubble when, you know, a lot of our accounts about Vikings um, I mean, one of the most iconic accounts was written by an Arab trader um, uh, who, who, you know, that that's, you know, it's, it's even in like the 13th Warrior, you know, we have him writing that this account of the Viking funeral, like there's a whole bunch of stuff we literally only know through those accounts. Um, and yet, you know, we, we, we write Viking worlds, which are basically mostly ice, like little bubbles of Vikingness. Um, and, and that's problematic maybe i don't know um but you know i, I did that I, I i like my first unpublished terrible novel i wrote when i was 14 was you know ragnarok um and it was completely composed of white people and it had nothing else but vikings as far as i can see who did they raid i don't know each other i didn't even have monasteries in it and wow. i think that they desired to just research one culture and just kind of cut cut it out and make that your fancy setting like, I, I know what that feels like, and I think it would be good to not do that. So, as, I, as a baseline, I really, this is a process I really enjoy, um, uh, possibly because my best friend is a person of color, but uh, I have gotten so many very interesting edge of white supremacy emails from people saying, Why do you have a black knight in the William Gold series? And I'm like, Well, he's a real guy. The, the, the Black Squire, member of the Order of the Swan, uh, ended up as a great knight in England. Uh, he was black. Uh, we know that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, his family, the modern English noble family, denies that he was black. But their uh, denial is not just a river in Egypt. And, um, you know, those, those brave Roman legionaries standing on Hadrian's Wall, a lot of them were brown and various other colors. And, um, you know, history is full, actually, of travel, transfer, cultural transfer. Um, 15th century Venice, there was a fad for having female Asian slaves, uh, by which I mean from China. 
it was a fad. It lasted like 15 years and then, then they moved on. But, uh, and there are names that show up in late 15th century Venice where you go, this is an Italianization of a Chinese or Korean name. And that is super fascinating. And just to be fair, Jeanette, it's not just what they did to, to Asian names. They did exactly the same thing to Scottish names. You should see Campbell or MacDonald translated into Italian. They are fabulous, fabulous names. Sounds hilarious. Um, so, uh, and, and Miles and I talked about this kind of before we got the panel together. Um, and, and let's be honest, he was kind of the, the driving force behind this panel. He, he should be moderating it. But uh, we had talked about video games or gaming in general as inspirations, um, you know, for maybe those that don't go out and do reenactments or, uh, you know, sword fight in their garage uh, or basement or take swords into church basements. Um, do any of y'all play, you know, maybe not even in video games, but, you know, board games, et cetera. And where do you draw inspirations in those? Of course, and of course, balls those. <laughs> I believe in at least in about five years, we're going to get, get a whole raft of Crusader King, like let's plays as novels. And I can't wait. <laughs> Crusader Kings um, two, three is now out now, but it's the, it's the one where you're playing a dynasty and it's just full of murder and, and like marrying off your children and scheming and murdering your way to having a giant empire it, it's it's hilarious and it, it it it's very procedurally generated in the sense that you you play people and like the computer plays everyone else and you're it, it's not actiony it's it, you're basically managing a series of spreadsheets but somehow those spreadsheets create stories it, it's fantastic um and i'm and i think like in another three years all novels inspired by it's going to show up or now maybe they're published now and i've not noticed <laughs> but it's it's all very dynasty building i used to used to game quite a lot but i kind of um i i stopped because i have an obsessive personality so i was, it was just taking over my life so i thought i'm I'm going to end up with no life if I uh, keep doing this. But what I used to play was um, the Shogun Total War series a lot. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, day would merge into night and then back into day without realising because that is, that is just such a great reenactment game. Um, but I did break my rule last year because my boys are big gamers and they tempted me and tempted me until I broke and I, and I played God of War. I don't know if you guys have played God of War, but um, wow, what a game. That is just fantastic. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, that was hugely inspirational. Um, I'm glad that I've written book one of my new kind of um, Norse-inspired series, because otherwise it just would have been all about Kratos. But um, it's, it's, it is inspirational, yeah. All right, Miles. I, I know you raised your hand. Uh, well, I, I want to start by saying that um, uh, I always have a story for every occasion, which is why I talk too much. But uh, a long time ago, before some of you were probably born, my then girlfriend, now wife, basically wanted to shut me up for a day. So she handed me a game uh, that could be played on a computer. I think it was called Age of Mythology. Mm -hmm. um, and 47 hours later, I took a nap. <laughs> and I have never played an online game again since then because I came to the instant assumption that this 
and having a writing career were not going to go together well. Um, <laughs> so uh, I play tabletop games, uh, little lead men and women, and um, uh, yeah, and, and I learned some things from them. And I certainly, uh, my whole Cold Iron series, I ran as a role-playing game for three years to sort of get to know that world because I felt I knew the Red Knight world intimately, but the Cold Iron world, which was set farther in the east in a far more uh, non-England, non-white sort of setting, I needed to play and have other people who weren't me play in and bounce off the walls so that I could figure out how it all worked. And that was super useful. Um, it was super the weirdest questions. Yeah, they do. And they also like, they go, oh, the magic system works like this. Let me break it, um, which is um, uh, really fun. I mean, after it's deeply frustrating, it's really fun. Uh, and I will also admit, I this is so weird. I am such a nerd. Uh, I get a lot of inspiration and good writing ideas while painting miniatures. Um, it's the thing that's always there for me when nothing else works, apparently because I have another friend who says art makes art. Uh, and she believes that going to an art gallery or watching a ballet or listening to a really good singer often helps her with her art, which is visual art. And I have also had that experience, but there's something about sort of the careful hand-eye coordination of painting little people. I know, I know what you're thinking and you're all completely correct. Um, uh, that, that, uh, that helps me visualize. And sometimes um, I think all writers have that moment where characters sort of jump the rails and wander off with bits of the plot and you go, oh, I didn't know that was gonna happen. A lot of those things happen while I'm painting miniatures. Anyway, I know you didn't wanna know that. <laughs> I think one of the nice things about games um, is kind of trying to think about systems, like especially when it comes to fantasy worlds, um, because, World, fantasy worlds are composed of systems, even if you're, even in, and and in a game, um, be it like a, a tabletop game or like a, 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 sort of a kind of a emergent simulation game like Crusader Kings or like Dwarf Fortress, you kind of see these different systems interact with each other in a way that can be inspirational because you're kind of, you're not, at least when I'm world building or like trying to write about a setting, I'm kind of each little bit is sectioned off and it's like, okay, so you know, this is, I'm going to write about the religion or the clothes or whatever. And when you're thinking about it in the context of a game, things kind of come together and they have to interact with each other. Um, and obviously, you know, um, Dwarf Fortress is infamous for a lot of very stupid interactions. Um, the cat AI doesn't work properly. And now, you know, trying to control the cat population is a thing that you really, you know, the moment you see a cat, you have to murder it because it's pathfinding AI would, um, would completely murder your game. Um, it, it would just sink CPUs into it. So um, everyone really hates cats in that game. This is probably about a decade ago now. I haven't played it for a while, but um, these little emergent systems create create stories. Um, and I think that that's, that's convenient for, for storytelling. I, I don't know how that would translate into a fantasy setting. Maybe like having too many cats would um, slow the movement of the sun or something. <laughs> That's probably a good short story. I should probably write that down. <laughs> now, Sebastian, uh, I, if you want to answer the gaming question, you can. But uh, Holly Tinsley wanted to know uh, about the uh, the pistol behind you. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a flintlock. Uh, I've never fired it. 
it uh, can't be fired because we have laws about that in Canada. Um, I'm sure Christian breaks them all, uh, but um, uh, it was given to me by uh, by my uh, brother-in-law. It's a lovely gift. It's I think it's um, from the 18, early 1800s. But actually, Christian might be able to tell better than me because I'm terrible with firearms. What do you think? Looks Greek or Turkish, 1780s. It's long, right? Yep, it's yeah. pretty long. Yeah, very, very nice. It's a, it's a holster pistol. You'd have a pair of them on horseback. And uh, yes, yeah, 1750 to 1780. I mean, I'm looking at this on a little tiny picture. So, yeah. and, and who knows, maybe I'm just making it up. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a huge fan of wheel locks just because of the beauty of them. If you've ever sort of gone and seen a, a wheel lock in a museum, they're just such a gorgeous apparatus and how it works. So, so I actually use wheel lock pistols in the, in the great coats books. Um, uh, and also cause wheel locks actually are still functional. Like there's ways to, there's ways to make them better now. So, uh, so that they'd be more viable weapons compared to, you know, just, you know, because normally we think of wheel locks as coming, you know, before flint locks, flint locks is sort of where, you know, starts to matter. Um, but, uh, but I just adore those ones. But this is, but this one's a lovely, uh, a lovely uh, pistol. Thanks for asking. I'll, I'll tell my, uh, my uh, brother-in-law, he'll be delighted. He'll have justified one more gun purchase. <laughs> um, yeah, the video game thing, I, uh, seriously, the last video game I probably got super enmeshed in was, was Wizardry 1 which was an Apple II game from like, I think 1980 or something. Um, and then and then once video games, and and so it's, it, there's a lot of ways in which I, as a writer, work the opposite, especially of, of, of a lot of other fantasy writers. Um, and I sometimes trace it to video games, which is the more beautiful and complete video games become, the more the imagery, the sounds, all of it, you know, the more it becomes cinematic, um, the less I can engage with it. Um, wizardry was nothing but like black and white line, you know, lines of a horribly bad 3D representation of stuff with horribly bad um, pixelated pictures of monsters. And yet I vividly remember being fully engaged with that and being able to play that for, for 10, 20 hours at a time. Play Dwarf Fortress. It doesn't Dwarf have Fortress? Fortress. It, oh, it there doesn't you. have graphics. It, it is oh. just characters. Yeah. Oh, I'll give it a try. Presented by a lowercase c. <laughs> like, um, um, those games could be totally fun too. But but I think, so for so for me, it's a, it's always about tactility, right? The experiences I'm always looking for are tactile. And it, and it probably, it sounds kind of stupid, but it's easier for me to envision, a, if I want to envision a sword fight where a character is losing the fight, and it's just gone completely to hell. It is easier for me to watch, to, to do an aerobics video until I feel sick to get to the point where I can write that scene than it is for me to either play it out in a video game format or, 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 to, or to see it or, or other things like that. Because that feeling of being so sick, you're not sure, you know, like, I mean, I'm terrible at aerobics, um, but, but like that, that's that moment where you're just like, you just don't know if you can keep going. That's, it's those, it's those sort of bodily tangible experiences for me that, that helped me find the drama. And, and my philosophy of writing has always been the same. Like I'm a servant of drama and that's it. Like authenticity is great if it serves drama. If it doesn't make things more dramatic, then I couldn't care less about authenticity. Um, 
And so for me to finding that those moments of drama often come through that. It's why it's why so much of my writing comes from running. So I like to run. I'm a terrible runner. Um, but, uh, and, but the nice thing about running is if you're, if I listen to music, cause I'm also very musically driven and there's something evocative in the song and I run, I can make, I can imagine scenes and make myself cry. Uh, and that's when I know I've got a good scene cause I'll suddenly start crying. And part of that's just cause I'm running and running sucks. Like it feels awful. And you just like, you're so weak and you're just struggling. And then there's the song, you have this idea for this beautiful scene and then you start crying and, you know, and then I go like, there we go. I got it. Right. You know, thank you, whoever wrote, uh, what's your name, who wrote, uh, hey, I just met you, because, uh, like, somehow that produced <laughs> this okay. monumental battle climax scene in my head. It's usually not quite like that, but but I remember when I was writing The Great Coats, uh, the first Great Coats book, The Traitor's Blade, there was a scene, um, there's a, a sword fight scene um, that was entirely driven from the Chris Cornell song that he wrote for Casino Royale called You Know My Name, which was largely reviled as one of the James Bond songs. Like it, it wasn't seen as one of the great songs. I played that on a loop while running and just miles and miles and miles of running as I would use that to find the timing of, of the fight scene. Uh, human beings, there's absolutely no virtue to rhythm if you're sword fighting, like none whatsoever, generally speaking, because rhythm is predictability. Um, but humans can't help but produce rhythm together sometimes. And so I find um, often, you know, rock music has the, that virtue of it has all of the different instruments playing at different time intervals. Uh, and so you can, so for me, I'll often like start to choreograph the scene in my head to that. So, so that's often where I sort of come from. I wish, I kind of wish I could get it from video games. Like I'll buy things like, um, I bought this great book called Zweihander and it's a, it's a role-playing game. It's, it's a grim and perilous role-playing game and it's just massive. And it's got like every, what I like about it is all the professions like rat catcher and astrologer and it's got all these grimy professions. And one of their, one of the brilliant things that they do is they give every profession has roughly equal chances of being useful in 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 a game so you know being rat catcher has as, as many advantages to being like a ranger or whatever um and so i'll, I'll buy these things and i'll think oh this will be such a great resource but then i just can't seem to do it like for me it always comes back down to the those physical tactile uh sources of inspiration hmm. um so question that was just asked by by john sun has been uh it's been commenting here pretty recently, but uh, what are some, what are some, uh, I guess, who are, who are some writers that have impressed you with some authentic fight scenes? Cause I mean, I know there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, fiction out there and I'm sure every now and then you'll, you'll start reading one and you kind of cringe a little bit <laughs> just based on just action after action after action. Cause there's no way it has that much stamina, but you know, who are some writers that, that got it right? Of course not. <laughs> Chris Neves, Sebastian, Sebastian DeCastle, John Gwynn, <laughs> Jeanetting. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I totally write fight scenes. Uh, actually, I really enjoy Sebastian and John's fight scenes, but I'm going to tell an anti-story instead of a story. Uh, so first of all, I'm going to say I think one of the best fight scene writers of all time is Alexander Dumas. Uh, he's consistent and he knows what it's like, and he probably had actually killed people. but. Uh, my anti-story is um, years ago when I hadn't even written a fantasy novel yet, uh, Australian SAS officer wrote me a piece of fan mail and he said, I love your fight scenes, but you and I both know 
that if you're in real combat, you have no fucking memory of what happened. And so the whole construct of describing a fight scene is false. Now, it was interesting that he thought I had done this because in fact, I had not. But I asked around amongst other, I, 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 I was in that community. I just never had to do it. And other people who have been in a life or death fight all basically go like, yeah, you're in the black, you go bang, bang, and it's, it's over and you don't, you know, and it doesn't come to you later unless it's PTSD. And then it, what comes to you is not how clever you were with your sword moves. And so having a character sort of participate in his mind in a sword fight is possibly very a very artificial construct, which you're inflicting on your book because you know your readers want to read it. And then I also want to say, and I think both Sebastian and Jeanette already touched on this, but I just sort of want to say it my own way because I talk too much, that experience is a two-way street. It's not always accurate. So whether it's Dungeons and Dragons, LARPing, or uh, the, the world of online gaming, we are constantly taught that you are a pile of hit points and you are gradually whittled down in the process of a fight. And whether it's a James Bond movie or the latest Jeffrey Archer book, usually the heroic climactic fight is a sort of Irish stand down punch thing where the hero goes down for a long time and then finally gets up and finally just barely pulls it out. And, you know, Princess Bride fight scenes, whatever, pile of hit points fight scenes. But people who fight a lot will tell you that actually what happens is most of those hand to hand combats take about two seconds as the more experienced person walks in and kills the other person like it was murder. And uh, in sword fights, if no one has a shield and shield fighting changes this career completely, um, someone's gonna be dead super fast, especially on a battlefield where you can't back up, you can't go anywhere. You have to stand your ground as the giant forces. And this is why the shield wall experience gives John this, this great background. Whether you're a hoplite or a Viking, those other 80 guys around and behind you, pressing you forward, give you no chance to dodge, back up, be nimble with your footwork. You're just going to stand your ground and kill or be killed in seconds. And it's all going to be over really fast. And I, I guess that expectation from the reader that the climactic fight scene should go on and on, should take up a lot of space and be dramatic, as Sebastian is saying, in a kind of Hamlet-like way, has been built into English literature, video games and everything and yet possibly doesn't really represent what's going on so in answer to your question the best fight scene i've ever read is in patrick o'brien uh in the first Ma patrick o'brien novel master and commander where stephen maturin is watching the climactic fight scene while being at the helm of his ship and the whole thing is told as if it's 15 minutes later and all he can remember is one moment where one of his friends is killed. Hmm. And otherwise you just are instantly taken to the moment of victory. They've captured the Spanish ship. And you know, you think all book, we're gonna have that traditional like fight on the deck of the Spanish ship and we're gonna cut and thrust and it's gonna be great. And instead you get this weird PTSD-ish anti-climax where all he sees is the Marine or uh, James Dillon, his old friend, being cut down, fighting gallantly and dying, and then the British win. And I think it's the best fight scene ever written. I think my favorite trope is when, you know, usually like a, a duelist or someone who is 
practice with single sword or is fights in single combat a lot get stuck in a shield wall like they end up in a war scenario and they, they get given a sword they get given a shield and like nope now all your training all your fancy sword skills they're useless you need to fight with a shield now and that's my favorite trope um it happens in quite a few books i think like one of jacqueline carrie's books has it where like one of her twirly fighters gets stuck behind a shield and it's just i i i just really love it as a trope um it, it does come up quite a bit nowadays um as people kind of are increasingly enamored of shield walls which is a good thing but um um i, I think the other thing about um like expectations of fight scenes is expectation of training um and obviously there are people historically who did spend a lot of time training to fight um, um but one of the examples i quite like is how in tolkien we don't no one really trains aggressively the hobbits just pick up swords they go into battle and they they can fight um mary just you know he, he just shows up and he fights um and, and they don't they don't do a training montage um to the point where the movies add a training montage in with boromir and it's a very cute scene but they and i always kind of very a lot of people kind of comment on it point out that it's it's reflective of tolkien's experience that he was a schoolboy who got you know he was just a normal person who ended up on the front lines and he didn't go through lots of training you're just in war and you cope and you discover you can vaguely fight and you do it um in a way that um a lot of more modern i mean people i nerds love complaining like blah 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 how can x person just pick up a sword and fight there needs to be a training montage um yeah. and and i think that's 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 quite interesting um how we conceive of skill and expertise and how competent you, you are allowed to be without training yeah that that itself to me is is a very dungeons and dragons sort of video game kind of thing that because because what those what those games teach us is is that the skills are very specific and you you sort of rank in them and stuff like that and it and it ignores like anyone who's taken fencing you know look the object of fencing is pretty simple right you put the point into the other guy first uh, or the the opponent first, um, and you know, except in foil where you have you know rules of right of way and things like that. But who cares about foil? That's not a real weapon. Epe, epe for the win. Um, sorry, I get a bunch of crap from saber fencers um, and foil fencers who think they're doing something magically noble. Um, but but anybody who who's tried epe realizes early on that you are vastly worse off having a moderate amount of training with an FA than if you had no training at all, because the person with no training at all is just going to rush at you. They're going to do everything badly, but they're going to have long straight arm and thrust and they're using all of their, their speed that their body can produce. And when you start to study fencing and you're focused on posture and form, you, you, you imbue yourself with a tremendous amount of awkwardness that takes forever to kind of get through. And then you come through, you know, there comes a point where you've got enough training, that you can pretty much beat any beginning fencer with an with with an epee, um, but, but it takes a while. Freshers, um, like uh, freshers, that's the first year of university. Like freshers, mm -hmm. um, skill where they just you have no idea what they're going to do. They've not learned form, so they just rush at you, and you're like, ah, why are you holding your sword like that? Your your left side is completely open, but I don't know. She's already in my face. Yeah, but you realize that back in the days when people fought to the death, sorry, I'm interrupting because no, I like that. Um, I also the first thing, not the first thing, but somewhere in there, they teach you six chestnuts to kill that person. Like there are 
automatic ways to kill a beginner. You offer them their sword. When they go to beat it, you kill them. Mm -hmm. And they used to teach those first very early on, but now we're not dueling. So they don't bother to teach you the chestnuts, the like six ways to kill a beginner. And I often find it interesting watching HEMA fencers, historical fencers, and go like, wow, nobody told you the six chestnuts. So you are struggling with this, as you say, fast, wild beginner. Whereas we old people from a slightly different classical fencing tradition, I'm talking about Sebastian's kind, we were taught these six things right off the bat. Like, if, if somebody gives you any of these six openings, you just kill them. They can run at you all they want. And I would argue that whether it's the shield wall, we know a little bit about Viking fighting or whatever, that the really trained person is just a murderer to the beginners. And mm -hmm. it is murder, which, by the way, creates character because that's not a sport. It's not fair. It's not fun. That's a person who knows every engagement is a kill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the other thing, you're absolutely right. The, um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that the, this notion of, you know, the duelist who's then, hand, you know, whose rapier is taken away and they're handed a long sword or a broad sword or a two handed sword or a shield is is gonna you know suddenly it's everything they know is gone the the reality is and this is one of the weird things i think rapier studying rapier is really good for this rapier is basically the study of hard surface physics like that's that's fundamentally what it is because rapier is is of course it's the least satisfying in some ways weapons to study when you grew up on swashbuckling movies because it's pretty much nothing like that it was designed and meant for hyper-efficient sort of, you know, linear path finding um, between you and somebody's vulnerable flesh. And so once you start to work with that, it's all about angles, right? It's, it's all about angles and blocks. And, you know, um, Christian sometimes tells a story I've heard him tell about using a buckler and how a buckler shield, you know, to us looks ridiculous because it's so small. How does that protect you? Yeah, except that when a buckler's at full extension, it you know functionally looks like it's covering your whole body almost or your whole upper body, and so it's all about understanding those lines and, and those sort of hard surface physics. Um, and so yeah, so so a, a duelist who is suddenly given you know a broadsword is still a, a lot of that training is still going to be there. The the muscle memory reflexes won't be there, but but it's not as if you know they're suddenly kind of useless. And that's one of the things about the sort of Dungeons and Dragons, where when you when you try to create like a really good role playing game, you want those skills to be hyper specific because you don't want them to. It's more fun that way, right? The, the thing that the player chose was what they were going to develop. And oh God, you chose to raise up your rapier skill instead of bringing up your broadsword skill so now you're in a broadsword fight and you've made you know you're screwed but in but i think in a in, a, in an actual sword fight or an actual combat you know the, the the training is never so much about the weapon as it is about the physics that make weapons work unless you have a samurai sword and they're very bristle <laughs> and that's and they have the very very specific splicing style so that they don't break all their swords yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> John, I want to hear a little bit from you. Uh, you know, you use yeah, yeah. a completely different weaponry than everybody else. So what about yeah, you? Just going back to the original question about who, who do we like Sorry. to bring um, <laughs> for combat, uh, which, uh, you know, Christine answered really well. But I think for, personally, the guys I've mentioned off the top of my head, other than the guys in the room, are um, Bernard Cornwell. He's one of my go-to readers. Um, 
he's one of the one of the writers that uh you know i just buy buy his book whatever whatever his new book is i'll buy it and read it because i know i love it and i've i've always thought that he wrote combat brilliantly um i'd specifically mention his king arthur series uh, which is my one of my favorite series of all time the trilogies War, warlord chronicles i think but anyway so I'd, I'd highly recommend if if you're into reading um combat i'd, I'd read bernard cornwell robert Lowe's another um brilliant writer who who writes um well he started off with with um some norse series but he's done uh some roman and scottish medieval stuff as well he's a great writer and in fantasy i'd I'd say Joe Abercrombie, um, his combat is just fantastic because it's not perfect. There's people are tripping and slipping and fumbling and, you know, combat isn't, um, isn't all dancing and perfect moves and choreography. It, it's, um, it's just blundering your way through it and trying to stay alive. And even, even in my brief experience in the shield wall and Norse combat, you know, that that's kind of what it is. You know, someone slips, uh, in mud and that you that's it you got a spear in the head um so yeah that joe abercrombie i think for me really captures that kind of chaotic um fumbling melee and those yeah so off the top of my head i'd recommend those guys to answer was it my son that asked that question ed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go ed <laughs> i've told you that before <laughs> rebecca kwan's um poppy war series is very good Mm -hmm. um it's it's um it, it does have magical martial arts as well as um as um as stabbing people but um but but it, it's it, it has the brutality of war down um i think it's it, it has a grim darkness that a lot of other books try to capture in terms of war um that it it nails in a way that and, and maybe that's just because you know it's it's very loosely based on modern Chinese history and um, um, and it's therefore very personal to me. But but it's it's brutal. And I, I if you're looking to read um, fight scenes and battles that that really get under your skin, I, I would recommend that. Not a pleasant I, experience, admittedly. No, that's the. Uh... I, I was going to say, I always tell people, uh, so to, I, when, whenever I have to give a, a, a class on writing fight scenes, especially writing duels, I always make people watch two scenes, which you can see just on YouTube. They're easy to find. Um, it's just two con contrasting film scenes. The one is the Wesley and Hugo uh, fight uh, in The Princess Bride. And the other is the opening scene from Ridley Scott's first movie, The Duelists, um, because they both represent uh, two different beautiful visions of, of how we can see sword fights um, taking place. The, the Princess Bride one, of course, was meant to be, you know, they brought back, I think, Bob Diamond and, and uh, what's his name, Bill, oh God, the guy who, the guy, he was one of Errol Flynn's uh, stunt doubles. Um, and he's one of the most, he's one of the two most famous um, sword choreographers. And I, I should get slapped for not remembering his name right now. Um, anyway, but he, his style was all about the beauty of the sword fight. And so if you watch the, the Wesley and Inigo fight, it's absolutely gorgeously beautiful and completely unrealistic, despite William Goldman, Goldman's uh, pretensions that he looked up all the names right. 
So when they're shouting, you know, uh, I can't. What are the ones that he he, he shouts through there? The music. You have studied your. You have studied your Agrippa. Yeah, exactly. Agrippa and Bonetti's defense and all that stuff. So he looked up a bunch of terms and, and threw them in. Meanwhile, they're doing what is the most one of the most magnificent Hollywood style fights. It's, meant, it's an homage to all those old 30s and 40s um, fight scenes. When Ridley Scott was hiring the other guy whose name I can't remember, who's also an equally um, famous uh, fight choreographer, he said to him, I don't want this to look like any of that Hollywood crap. I want it to be as ugly and dirty as possible. And if you watch the sword fights in The Duelist, and especially the opening one, where you realize, yes, this is probably almost exactly what it would look like. There's, there's almost no engagement of the blades. There's no back and forth dancing. It's like somebody tries a move and then they get scared and they get nervous and, and, and it just all falls apart. Um, so I love, I love those because they really give you that contrasting um, sort of emotional landscape to play with. And I'm not, and, and I, you know, I am absolutely one who aims for the Princess Bride sword fights as much as I can because I, I absolutely love the beauty of that wherever I can, wherever I can um, viably trick the reader into buying into it. Um, but also uh, not to puff up uh, Miles uh, because that's not usually ne super necessary. Um, but if somebody really wants to sort of see, read a really good set of sword fights for, and get it and get the opportunity to sort of see how it works um, in a context that makes sense, Cold Iron is fantastic for that because Aaron Thur is not the super expert guy who has no reason to explain it to you. Um, but he's also got the the abilities to to sort of to fight properly. And so you get a kind of a sense of how a sword fight would actually play out um, in a way that's both realistic and uh, evocative. So that would be my one, Cold Iron. Wow, the check is in the mail. <laughs> uh, but since Sebastian has given me this obvious opening, uh, when I set out to write Cold Iron, I was actually writing a completely different novel about how sword mastery happens. So every fight scene in Cold Iron is actually a fencing lesson. Uh, and it was totally written deliberately that way, and it runs all the way through the third book. So each one, if you're a practitioner, each one has like a basic fencing uh, law lesson you know, or or rule contained in it. And that was totally on purpose because it was all going to be all about fencing. And then the characters ran off with the novel and it wasn't about fencing at all. Um, speaking of choreography, um, I think Estelle Huang, who writes um, writes fancy novels, um, she, she works uh, as a, a Hollywood stunt lady in her other, in her as her other job, as her day job. And, and she has some pretty cool fight scenes that are cinematic what was your name again sl huang sl huang jeanette could you put that on the twitter sure thanks i would i would much appreciate that i'm looking for stuff to read right now there's we just call it twitter now grandpa <laughs> I, I thought it pronounced tweeters uh, uh, i was so fond of you a moment ago sebastian <laughs> Need a little salt with the sweet, my friend. Oh my god, he's he's rescinding that check now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we we've had a phenomenal chat so far, um, but I want to go ahead and uh, and kind of get to our last our last thing, and it's really not even a question, but I want to know 
what is everybody working on currently? You know, what's about to come out, what's recently come out, and then where is a starting point with your books for new readers? Well, let me finish because he tends to go on a little bit longer. So <laughs> I will try and be short. Uh, I am I am doing a director's cut of The Red Knight, which is going to have some new scenes in it. I've wanted to do this from the beginning for complicated reasons that I won't bore you with right now, uh, but. Uh, it'll be a little longer. It'll have some new stuff and a whole bunch of name corrections for those of you who read it and wondered why people's names change during the thing. And um, that's fun. And then I'm getting ready to write the sequel to a book you haven't even seen. So I'll just say uh, my next fantasy series is called Against All Gods. It's uh, set in a completely not our earth Bronze Age um, with lots of non-white uh, civilizations and uh, etc. Just referring to an e earlier discussion, um, uh, including pacifist Harappans, like the Indus Valley culture that appears to have been the predecessors to the Jains. And I that was partly driven by because I write so many fight scenes, going like, so how do pacifists survive in one of these nasty ass fantasy worlds? And what's it like to have a morality that prevents you from using a sword? Anyway. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm having a ball writing that series. It's got the biggest magic and the biggest gods. Um, and I enjoy reading other people's books like that. So I thought I'd actually sit down and write one that wasn't, you know, sort of, that wasn't so based on, I don't know, the middle ages or the early Renaissance. Uh, that's what I'm doing right now. And the easiest way to get into my books, I have 43 books. Um, so I'm gonna say, if you're a historical fan, read The Ill-Made Knight or Killer of Men. And if you're, uh, they both begin series. If you're a fantasy fan, um, if you like a million characters and a vastly complicated situation, you should try The Red Knight. And if you like one character and a vastly complicated situation, you should try Cold Iron. Perfect. Cool. Sebastian? Um, so I've got three books coming out this year. Uh, as, as it happens in April, uh, Way of the Argosi comes out, which if um, which actually, if you've never read any of my books, it's a YA fantasy. Um, it's uh, everything I write in YA fantasy is kind of like the opposite of Harry Potter. Take all the stuff you like from Harry Potter and get rid of that and make it dark and nasty. Um, but uh, but if you haven't read, but this you someone could actually start uh, with this book if they wanted. Um, the, but it's uh, not I, transphobic. Uh, it is not transphobic. No, blessedly. Oh, oh poor, poor. Yeah, poor. Oh, well, I, I should. Yeah, not, sorry. Uh, it is the greatest uh, scandal of our day. As as, Je as Jeanette opens up the the bear trap for and and invites me to step inside. <laughs> um, sorry, uh, sorry. Wear leg armor. <laughs> yeah, we're like armor. Um, in uh, in probably in June, I think uh, Play of Shadows comes out, which is the first new book of the Court of Shadows series, which is set in the Great Coats world. Play of Shadows is I maintain uh, the world's greatest uh, swashbuckling fantasy set in a theater, um, which no one in the world has ever asked for. So. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Uh, and then in the fall, the, the follow-up to Way the Argosi comes out, which, uh, which is called Fall of the Argosi. Um, if somebody hasn't read any of my books, if you want adult swashbuckling fantasy, um, Trader's Blade is sort of the right place to start. And it's a pretty snappy book. It's about 117,000 words, unlike the follow-up that gets longer. And then for YA fantasy magic and squirrel cats, um, 
Spellslinger is a pretty natural place to start. It has a very different cover in North America. For some reason, Orbit pu published them as adult fantasy uh, in North America, whereas they're YA everywhere else in the world. Um, but yeah, I you know, it has a talking murderous squirrel cat. I don't know what other promo anyone would need. There's um there's a pie chart in the back of those books. Yeah, you should show the that's pie right. Chart. So I'll see if it can focus in on it. So they, so hotkey books, they put these pie charts where it's like the four things in it. And when they were asking me, it's about a guy losing his, a young guy losing his magic right before his mages trials. And so it's just magic, 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 and it fades out. Um, but yeah, we have fun with those pie charts. <laughs> Constantly trying to, what do, we, what do we do with those pie charts this time? And, and sometimes uh, the suggestions get, uh, you, you know, everybody thinks it's like hilariously funny. And, and then we realize, you know, someone someone blessedly comes in at the last minute and goes, that is going to send entirely the wrong message. Just change it to something normal. So anyway, but that's me. John? Okay. Um, this is coming out in... Such an amazing cover. Oh. In May. May. May the 4th in, the, uh, in North America. Uh, May the 6th in the UK. And you're sending uh, me an ARC, right, John? Yeah, should be in the mail, Christian. Okay, good. <laughs> I genuinely mean that it should be. Um, so this is a book one of a new series that I'm writing. Uh, it's it's a Norse-inspired saga inspired by Beowulf and Ragnarok. Um, hopefully, I have a lot of fun with dead gods and um, uh, sheep wolves. So uh, yeah, that's that's the, the project I'm working on at the moment. If you want to jump into my writing, um, probably the best starting point is this guy here, uh, which is the first book I wrote, Malice, and it's book one of the Faithful and the Fallen, um, and that's where basically my previous seven books are all set in this world and all part of the story. So yeah, if you want to check that out, you can get that now, or The Shadow of the Gods will be out in May. If you like, John, can I can I just cut in to here and say, just by chance, I read Traitor's Blade and Malice back to back, and they are forever linked in my mind because I literally <laughs> read them one two, like they were in a series, which I know they're not. Anyway, two of my favorite books, so it's funny that I read them one two, and we're all on a panel together. <laughs> I like that, Jeanette. Um, I I really don't have very much exciting. I have one. One book, um, Under the Pendulum Sun, it has uh, a creepy fairy lady on it. Um, it's about missionaries. They go to fairyland. They spend a lot of time talking, um, and fairyland is weird. Um, it's very Victorian, and it's very gothic. Um, I believe it's um, uh, the, the, the meets line is Jane Eyre meets Crimson Peak um, with fairies. That's it. Nice. That's a, that's a great pitch. Um, just because Scott, just because Scott's not here, and and I, uh, I, I, for those who want to find his book, The Gathering of Ravens, uh, in in Scott's own words, far better than any other book ever written. I think was what he meant to say when he was cut off, but we'll say it for him. Yes. Scott is a fantastic author. I always enjoy his stuff, and I really wish that we had had better comms uh, because I'm sure he would have had things to say that I could have talked over. 
Um, and, and I also want to say, I, I just want to put in a plug for Under the Pendulum Sun. Uh, I generally enjoy books with uh, sword fights, battle scenes, uh, hopefully a long enduring uh, war or violent gods. Absolutely none of which were in Pendulum Sun and it was nonetheless one of my favorite books of the year. So I just like to give it a push to anybody who hasn't read it. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, I just want to thank uh, everybody that tuned in, uh, that's been commenting uh, this entire time. It's it's been a great watch, and I, just, and I really want to thank the panel and people so much for taking the time uh, out of your day to come chat about inspirations and putting out fires and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Um, just just really appreciate it. And everybody, make sure to check out their books. Um, and you've got you all have starting points now. Uh, and then also make sure to. Uh, to come back in just a little over an hour for our No More Heroes panel. Uh, and then later on today, uh, we'll have a panel at three o'clock central time uh, called But What Scares You? So we'll talk a little bit about horror. Uh, but just again, thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you in a little bit. Thank you for hosting Thanks, us. Thanks for having us, Dave. And everybody should donate. Yeah.